I'm Derek, I'm alcoholic. And, uh, we're just kind of joking around, and Jesse's looking for a speaker. My friend Stephen, I met Stephen, uh, I'd moved to Denver about eight years ago now, and uh, from Billings. And when I was in Billings, I didn't, uh, I quit going to AA, I was cured. So uh, um, I went to one meeting that entire year, and somehow I convinced my uh, my girlfriend, now my wife at the time, to... Uh, to move to Denver, and when I got there, I, I realized that you know I had to get, I had to get back into AA, or I was going to kill somebody, or drink, you know, and it, that that long term of not drinking didn't qualify me to to not go to AA meetings anymore. And uh, in that interim, I met a, a, a newcomer kid, and he was riding around on his bicycle a lot, and he had some crazy stories about living on the streets, and and uh, and you know, it, just a friendship came, and we. He started bringing his Chipotle over to my house every day, and he'd eat his burrito, and, you know, we'd just hang out, and that friendship blossomed into something pretty awesome, you know. And, uh, yeah, he's my, my good friend from Denver, Colorado. His name's Steven, so I'd like to introduce Steven. Good morning. My name's Steven. I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I am an alcoholic. My name is Steven. I am from Denver, Colorado. Uh, My home group is Denver Thursday Night. We're located on Sherman and uh, 17th, right beneath the Telltale Cash Register building. So if you're in the area, we are a closed group, but... We have an open beginner's meeting before, so you're welcome, and please join us. Uh, I do have a sponsor, and my sponsor has a sponsor. And, you know, I believe in practicing the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as a program of recovery. Uh, You know, I understand myself to be an alcoholic, and I understand what that means today, because before I came into these rooms, I thought an alcoholic was someone that really liked to drink and was good at it. And I was both of those. So I didn't have any bones about calling myself an alcoholic. Uh, I was a daily drinker. Towards the end, uh, I became a bench drinker on top of the daily drinking. So, uh, you know, like the daily drinking where, like, I could show up for work kind of thing, even though I looked a little beat up, but I managed to pull myself out of bed. But towards the end there... You know, I couldn't even leave the house. It was just around-the-clock kind of thing. Uh, I'll back up and just kind of give you some life history stuff. Um, I I like to talk about this not so much to, like, make myself out to be a victim, because I used to think about myself that way, but just to kind of highlight some friends of mine and the ways that I used to think. Uh... I did have a bit of a difficult childhood. Um, I'm the oldest of three brothers, but my parents were deemed negligent, and we were broken up and sent to foster homes. And there's a lot of bouncing around. And after the end of several years of bouncing around, my brothers were adopted by one family, and I was adopted by another. And I had a lot of uh, a lot of confused feelings about that, and a lot of anger, and I felt betrayed. I felt that. My parents, my parents had let me down, and 
I was just really screwed up about all that. And I basically decided not to trust anybody. You know, I felt that I had trusted these people to take care of me, and they had failed me, and that I couldn't trust anyone else ever again, and that I therefore needed to take care of myself. And that's, that was my attitude for a long time, that I'm going to take care of myself. I don't care about you. You know, you have some needs, you have some wants, and I have needs and wants, and I'm going to take care of mine first, no matter what you have to say about it. I I discovered alcohol when I was about 15, and you know, as my parents were out looking for a house, and I didn't I didn't want to move, so I just would pretend that it wasn't happening, and I wouldn't go with them. And when they were gone one day, I uh, I got into the liquor cabinet and. And I found something that I didn't even know, I didn't even know what I was looking for. I got this feeling, and it was just this release. And, you know, I found that thing that I never knew I wanted. It was just this feeling of just like, just like exhaling for the first time in my life, you know, just this deep peace. But at the same time, this thrill, you know, this excitement, it just felt alive, like I had never felt before, and I loved it, and... I, I understand that now to be an, a spiritual experience. And by that, I'm using a specific definition of spiritual experience. I'm defining it as an experience which rearranged all of my thoughts and ideas and beliefs and values in the world. You know, like I had been going through this world, just this confused, lost person, and once I took that drink, everything that I thought and everything that I wanted and every all my values and beliefs, and just everything shifted, like this monumental just left turn. And after that, like, that was my goal. All I wanted to do was just drink again and drink more, and, and so I chased that. And I got into a lot of drugs, but I'm not a drug addict. Uh, and the reason I know that is because I can stop smoking pot, I can stop doing acid. I can stop all the drugs because I want to do more tomorrow. And if I do them all, I don't have any left over. And so I get to a point where I'd save it. I can't do that with alcohol. With alcohol, even though I want to get drunk tomorrow also, somehow I, I always finish the bottle. Every single time, I always finish the bottle. It didn't matter if it was a small bottle or a big bottle or if there were two or three or five or ten bottles, or if it was your bottle, uh, the bottle got finished. Um, you know, so there was a lot of trouble and a lot of problems. You know, I did have difficulties associated. And I got busted for various things, and I got into a few legal problems, and uh, finally my parents got fed up with me, and they reached a point where they just weren't going to have it in their house anymore, and they kicked me out. And, you know, so I was homeless on the streets for a couple of years there, and that didn't stop me, you know, it just made it a little more inconvenient. Um... But it also allowed me the freedom to just 
do what I wanted to do without trying to hold up any pretenses or trying to hold up any image or, you know, play a game like, you know, you know, I was trying to live this life like I'm a student or, you know, I'm working a job because I graduated high school but didn't go to college, you know. And uh, I didn't have to fake it anymore. I could just be a bum on the streets and that was all right, you know. Uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't happy with myself. I knew, I knew that's not what I wanted in life. You know, I wanted something better for myself, and I wasn't happy. And, you know, I had this deep-seated self-loathing. Um, I had always had it, even before the drinking. You know, I just, I just didn't like myself. I remember just, just feeling that there was something wrong with me and that it was my fault, you know, and that... You know, if only I could say the right things or be the good son or be the good student or be the good brother and be a better person that everything would work out. And I felt that because things were working out all, all right, I was a bad person. Um, so, you know, I took, I took full responsibility. It was back to that attitude of I'm going to control things. You know, I'm going to take care of myself and, you know, everyone else if I need to. Uh, so, when I was on the streets, I got, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't fun trying to, like, find places to live, so, you know, I would sometimes get drunk and go to detox just to get a, a roof over my head and get some more meals, and ended up in a treatment facility, and that's where I was first exposed to AA, and, you know, I just went along for the ride, I didn't really know what was going on, but I just went there, and I sat, and... I don't remember what I heard, but I think the effect of it must have been that I, I just remembered that I knew these people had something that was going for them, you know, and I can't really say it any better than that, you know, like, I just, you know, I, I didn't want to stop, so I didn't take it seriously, you know, I was just playing this game where I was trying to make the courts happy by proactively going to treatment and, you know, just trying to look good, where all I really wanted to do was just drink and not be bothered about it. Uh, through, uh, through a youth homeless shelter, I got some help and I got back into school. And uh, it was during that time that I turned 21, and it really went downhill then. Um, I was working a job, and I pretty much just was a hermit in my dorm room, uh, just drinking around the clock, you know, like if the sun was out, I was in my bedroom, and I wouldn't leave until the sun was down, and I'd listen at my door, and wait until everyone was out of the hallways before I'd even walk down the hallway to go to the bathroom, and I was just terrified of people, just intense anxiety and fear, and I couldn't look anyone in the eye, and I was just, just freaked out, I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, and I finally got kicked out of school. Uh, you know, I didn't go to school, so I got bad grades, and they didn't like that, so they made me leave. And, uh, you know, I was pretty lost. So I went, I went down to Denver, and it was, it was up in Boulder that I was going to school. And uh, I went to a former employer, and... I went back to a former 
halfway house I knew about, and I checked myself into this halfway house, because I, you know, it was at this point, I'm starting to get these ideas like, all right, drinking is causing some serious problems in my life. If I want to accomplish anything, I need to stop drinking. I still wanted to drink, because I liked the effect of it, and, you know, the way it made me feel, and when I wasn't drunk... I had all this anxiety and fear, and I felt really uncomfortable, and I was freaking out. But then I had all these other problems that came along with it. So I was really torn between these two states of being, you know. Like, drinking was, like, the best thing and the worst thing in my life at the same time. And I I didn't know how to reconcile that. And so I, I just had this idea, like, I need to make myself sober. And so I checked myself into a sober living house, and you know, got a job with a former employer at a sandwich shop, and I told him everything, you know, I just was like, fuck, I got a problem here, and I'm trying to walk the clean line, I'm trying to walk the straight and narrow, and I was drunk in about a month, I got kicked out of that house, you know, because I'm doing it on my own, and I can't stay sober by myself, but I I was really confused, because I thought I could, I didn't know why I couldn't stay sober, because I really wanted to, you know, in my head it was like, i got to get sober for, like, six months or a year and get my life together, and then I can drink the way I want to. You know, that's how I wanted to do it. And so that went on for about another two years with that employer. You know, I was a wonderful employee when I showed up on time and was sober, and I was the worst employee because I also would come in drunk or not come in at all. Um... So I was really unpredictable. You know, I could do good work, or I could be a liability. You know, I I caused a lot of problems for him as well. And I can't really explain it, but uh, he's one of those men I just really look up to and think of as a father figure, um, because he just gave me a lot of love, and he gave me a lot of chances when I didn't deserve them. Um, I quit about five times, and he probably fired me about ten times. But... (laughs) uh, You know, I worked there for four years, and the first two of those years I was drunk. And I finally hit this point, you know, at the end there, the binges got to the point where there were like seven, eight, ten, twelve-day binges. You know, I had this quarter collection from the tip jar, so I had like $400 worth of quarters. And walking half a block to the liquor store, getting rolls of quarters for... McCormick's vodka or whatever was cheapest at the time and then just going to my bed and drinking around the clock because at that point it was like I was coming to and hating myself and the, the only the only option at that point was oblivion you know it was just drinking myself into oblivion coming to having the dawning the, the reality of what my existence was and hating myself and hating my life not wanting to die, because I, I didn't want to kill myself, but I didn't, I didn't want to live either, you know. And so I finally reached this place inside where I was utterly empty and lost and terrified, you know, that jumping off place, you know, that gift of desperation where I didn't care anymore. I didn't have any face to save. There wasn't pretending anymore. There wasn't any looking good. There was just this deep despair in this point where I finally, not intellectually, because, like, I had heard this idea about not being able to not drink, and it's kind of like that paradox. How can you not not do something? And, like, I thought I got it in my head, 
but it was finally this point where, like, in my stomach, you know, and in my heart, and I felt the truth that I cannot not drink. There was nothing I was ever going to be able to do to keep myself from going down the street and buying another bottle. And that just, that leveled me, you know, because I always, 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 I was the one in control. I'm the one with the power. And I realized at the moment I don't have enough power. I have power, but I don't have enough power. And that I can't save myself, and I never will be able to. And I was, I was devastated. And so I consider that a first-step experience. I don't feel that I worked the first step. I feel like it happened to me. And then I feel that I had, in the subsequent moments, a second and third step experience where I remembered back to those previous days where I had been to AA and I knew that there was this thing that these people did, I don't know what it was, but somehow their lives worked. And I felt that, well, maybe if their lives worked, there's a chance, there's a hope, and maybe my life can work. And... At the time, I didn't have a relationship with my parents. We probably talked about, you know, once every nine months or so. You know, I just pretty much called to tell them I was still alive. That was it. Um, and I called them. And I don't even remember what I said, but I think there just must have been something in the tone of my voice where they heard something. And I, I asked for help. I told them I told them that they needed to come and pick me up. And, I went to their house, and I basically detoxed for about two days. And in those two days, uh, my head started cranking again. I started to get some ideas about how I'm going to fix myself and what I'm going to do. Because, you know, I don't know what to do, and that's, that's all I have is this thing in here churning. And so I got these ideas, like, I need to go back to some sort of sober living house. This is what I'm going to do. I've got my plan. I'm going to make my life work. And somehow, after not being at work for like 12 days, my boss hired me back, and I went in just with my tail between my legs, totally humiliated. And uh, this old uh, this old bum walked into the sandwich shop that day. He was a guy that I used to drink with, and I knew from the detox days. And he came into the shop, and I told him this is my story. I was like, "Hey, man, I just had this bad binge. I'm done. I'm going to AA. It's my plan." I'm going to get sober. And uh, I think I was telling someone else that that's it's what I consider my anti-12-step experience because this guy <laughs> tried to convince me that AA was BS. Uh, it wouldn't work. There's nothing in AA you can't learn in a Psych 101 class. You know, he tried to convince me of all these different reasons why I should not go to AA, and it had the opposite effect on me. Like, everything he said just reinforced, I need this. You know, here's this guy. He can't make his life work either. You know, we're, we're the same. We used to drink together. And I'm like, oh, my God, I need to get there. <laughs> <laughs> so I showed up at a meeting that night, and uh, they had a, you know, inside I'm bursting. I want to just scream out something. Just, you know, notice me, I'm dying, but I'm terrified and humiliated and anxiety, and I don't want you to notice me, but I want you to notice me, you know? And so I don't know what to do, and finally at the end of the meeting, uh, I screamed out because I had a burning desire and blurted something out, I don't even know what. And uh, some guy approached me, and I had seen him around before, and he was this weirdo, and 
you know, I didn't think he was cool. And, you know, he asked me, you know, are you looking for a sponsor or do you need a sponsor? And I told him I was going to shop around a bit because I didn't want to talk to this weirdo. <laughs> but then this voice spoke up in my head that he's here now and I need help now and this is the guy, you know. Because there was, like, all these judgments and all these beliefs and prejudices in my life, and I didn't want to look stupid, even though, you know, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to be seen with this guy, even though he was this clean-cut guy, had a job, his life was working for him. But uh, So he became my sponsor, and when I told him all my ideas, what we were going to do, he told me to shut up and just call him tomorrow. And uh, basically, we met once a week. We read out the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when it asked a question, we answered the question. And when it says pray, we prayed. And when it says write, we wrote. And we treated the big book as a textbook, as a set of instructions, you know, not like a novel, like a story someone's telling us, but uh, as literal instructions you know, a program to follow, a recipe. Or, um, I didn't have a problem with God previously. You know, God to me was more of an intellectual exercise. It was like a topic of conversation for staying up all night long and getting high and drunk. Um, so that aspect was kind of not a big deal for me because it was the opposite. Instead of trying to, like, find a concept of a higher power, I just stopped thinking about it. You know, I just was like... I'm, I'm just going to let this thing work and watch the demonstration in my life. And, uh, yeah, uh, I got really involved. I got a home group. It was down the street from where Eric lived. So I would sit at the bus stop, and then I met Eric, and then I realized after about a month that he was going to the same place I was going, and I could probably ride in his car and not go in the bus. <laughs> and, uh, I got really involved. I got a service position, uh, which was nice because I didn't know how to talk to people. I had a lot of anxiety. And so it was easy when it's my job to set up the chairs and turn down the chairs and make the coffee. Like, I'm supposed to be there. And so if someone else is there, I can kind of, like, chit-chat, and it's not a big deal. Uh, where I, I didn't even know how to do that before. I, even today, I still find that difficult sometimes. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, gifts came out of my sobriety. You know, I, I worked the steps. I did the ninth step. And I got back into school, and, you know, I started really enjoying life. And uh, I met a girl where previously my longest relationship was about a month. We've now been together about five years, and we just got engaged about a month ago. Um, so that's... No small miracle there. Uh, during the school years, I got busy, and I didn't treat AA as a priority anymore. You know, I'd like, my life had filled up, whereas previously I didn't have any hobbies, I didn't have any things, all I did was drink, and now I have all these activities and all these interests and all these things that I'm doing. And, you know, around, like, three, four years, I'm in school, I'm busy, I've got homework, and I convinced myself that, well, I don't know, I don't need to go to a meeting tonight. 
oh, well, oh, I haven't been to a meeting for three days, but I've got homework, or, you know, I want to go do this, and I want to have some fun, and that kind of stretched out to the point where I realized that I hadn't been to a meeting for six months, I haven't talked to my sponsor, which at that point, you know, isn't a sponsor, but for a long time, and it reached a point where I realized I hadn't even prayed for nine months. And I got really resentful at people that would say, how's that working for you? (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be like, F you. You know, you're not talking to me, you know. If someone says, oh, well, Stephen, how's that working for you? You know, you're you're talking to me. But there's these people, and they kind of use that as a bludgeon just to, like, tell me, that they're working the program right, and I'm not doing it right, so they're a better person than I am. And I just got pissed off at that, and I was like, I was like, well, it's working all right. And the insanity of it was that, on one hand, it was working all right, but in the background, this thing was doing something, and it wasn't all right. You know, and I'd be there, I'd just be going through life, and like every six months or so, every three months, I'd just freak out for no reason. You know, uh, my sponsor now calls it the noise level, and it's just like this background white noise. It just gets a little louder and louder and louder, and, like, I can ignore it for a while, and then if I, at some point, like, it's so loud and my brain's going to explode, and nothing happened, but I'm losing it. And that was my experience, that I am falling apart in sobriety, nothing's going wrong, and I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm losing it. And I just ignored that for about three years. You know, I just I just ignored it. I would, like, go to a meeting, like, three or four meetings, and then, like, then those would go down a little bit, you know, and then we'd come back. And uh, what happened was I started stealing and I started cheating at school. You know, that's how I coped with that. I didn't take a drink, but I tried to manage my life. I try to take control back, you know, and make my life work. And I have this uh, this thing where I, I hoard materials and I steal things. My parents, my biological parents, they were hoarders. And I have something in me that I don't know what that is. But I started stealing from my employer. Um, over the course of two years, I stole a lot of equipment and a lot of materials and I lied on my timesheet. And then uh, there was a a homework that I cheated on, and I got caught. And it was like my whole world was crashing down because I only had one semester left in school. And it just hit me in the face, and I thought I was going to get expelled and kicked out, and all of my energy and effort and time and money that I put into this degree was just going to be destroyed because I didn't want to get a bad grade. I wanted to get an A, and so I lied about it and cheated. And at this point, I'm grateful that I got caught. You know, there's two times in my sobriety where the psychic pain has been so intense that it became physical. One was over a girl I dated for two months and was obsessed with for two years. (laughs) And when I saw her with a guy, there was, like, physical pain in my brain. And again, with this cheating, when I got caught and I felt that I was going to be expelled, and the fear... The fear and anxiety was so intense that it felt like an ice pick being driven into my brain. It was was both a sharp and a dull ache. And that's what finally drove me back to 
to these rooms to start working an active program and to develop my relationship with God again. You know, because I had, when I had gotten sober, I didn't have a relationship with God. I worked the 12 steps, became an active member, you know, was working uh, service positions, you know, three sides of the triangle. And then in school, I had lost that. And this psychic pain, you know, I was, I realized that it was lucky that I hadn't drank and that it was inevitable that I was going to, that I would drink because of these behaviors. You know, I was, I had been lying to everyone about the stealing. Obviously, I hadn't told anyone about the cheating either. And I carried that for about a week without telling anyone. And so it was a week of putting up with the ice pick in my brain before I finally decided to talk about it. And uh, I went to a meeting, and I saw a guy that I recognized, and I asked him to be my sponsor, and we started this process again. And we went through the 12 steps, and we did the same thing I described before. But it was another experience, and I got to some deeper stuff. You know, it wasn't like... It's not about learning anything, because I, I tend to be academic about this stuff, and I tend to think that if I learn why I behave certain ways, and if I learn, you know, if I do a very complete fourth step, and I can itemize and document all of these things in my behavior, I therefore have this knowledge and can fix myself. And I have not found that to be effective <laughs> or true. Uh, it's a power greater than myself, you know. Despite all of these things in my lives, in my life, uh, I keep I keep behaving this way despite the knowledge. And uh, you know, so we got to some deeper stuff and some deeper surrender, you know. In the first step, yeah, I accepted that I'm alcoholic and I surrendered. And so in six and seven. This time around, I had a deeper surrender where I accepted myself, both good and bad, for what I am. Uh, so what my life looks like now is, I already mentioned I'm engaged. Uh, I just graduated from CU last December, and I've got a job right now that I'm really excited about. And... Uh, I get the opportunity to be of service again. There's a conference that we hold in Colorado that I'm really passionate about, so I'll invite you all here. We've got a year to plan for it because we just had it. It's called Fellowship of the Spirit, and it's a family-based program. And uh, so we do both AA and Al-Anon. It's, it's really a family-oriented conference. And my, uh, my favorite group actually isn't my home group. It's this group I go to on Wednesday nights where it's just a bunch of us in the basement and we go there at 6 and eat food. And then we go in the basement at 7 and have a discussion group where we just read the big book. And there's AAs and there's Al-Anons and there's Cokeheads and there's Methheads and there's Coanons, which is an Al-Anon for a Cokehead. <laughs> <laughs> One of my best friends is from CA, so I like to call them the effing Cokeheads. <laughs> it's, a, it's a term of endearment. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a sense of family that I've never experienced before. You know, since I was a little boy, I always felt like I, I wanted to belong and I didn't. You know, I was always chasing this feeling of being accepted and just being a part of, and I never felt that I was a part of. I always felt alone and isolated. 
and the feeling I have with these people is really a strong sense of family. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, the bond that links our true family is not one of blood, but of joy and respect in each other's lives. And that's what I have, is joy and respect. And we share our good experiences, and we share the bad things that's going on with us, and we heal each other. And it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege and a joy to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and to be able to grow and to fail and then grow again and to be able to just hold my head up and not be ashamed and to be accepted even when I do feel shame. So thank you for your hospitality. Thank you.